Uh, We are in Revelation chapter 2, and we'll be looking at verses 18 through 29. There's an expression that we often use. The apple doesn't fall too far from the tree. If you've heard that expression, I'm sure you have because um, you're alive and people use it often. And I was thinking about that expression because as we look at our text this morning, we're dealing a lot with sonship or what does it mean to be a child of God? What does it mean to be a child of God? And I started thinking about myself as a parent and having children. And, and the thing about having children, it's, it's funny sometimes. And, and of course, the obvious funny things, I have a four-year-old, and if you spend even you know, 12 seconds with him, you're going to laugh. He's a funny little boy. But that's not really what I'm talking about. By funny, I actually mean frustrating. For those of you with children, I imagine that you've had a similar experience that when they do something wrong, more often than not, it is a manifestation of a character trait that you yourself possess. How many of you experience that? You watch your kid and you're just like, oh man, that's me. And that's what I mean by frustrating. It's not so much that my children, I love my children, I'm frustrated with myself as I watch my children. And I imagine that we've all had these experiences, and it's frustrating because you know that you are probably at fault for that. You're probably at fault for that. Now, our passage this morning, it does two things. We're going to get back to this whole idea of of children and sonship and what it means to be a child of God. Our passage does two things this morning. It highlights the nature of Jesus, that he is the Son of God. That he is the son of God. And two, it reveals to us our tendency to still function as sons of Adam rather than adopted children of God. It points out that we still struggle and we function as children of Adam rather than children of God. Now make no mistake about it. Those of us who have bent our knee to King Jesus, we are no longer children of Adam. We are children of the Most High God. But yet, in the same way that someone who moves to another country speaks with an accent, even though they might become a citizen of that country, we too still speak with an accent of Adam or the accent of sin. But we are saints and we are children of the Most High God. But sometimes we forget. Sometimes we forget. So with that, let me pray very quickly for our time this morning, and we will jump in. Father in heaven, I thank you for your grace, and I thank you for your word, and I pray right now, Lord God, that as we look into your word, as we wrestle with your word, Father, that you would convict us of sin, that you would draw us near to yourself, make us more and more like you, Father, like our Father, And make us more like our elder brother, Jesus, Lord, the firstborn of all creation. Father, I pray that in the most precious name of our Savior. Amen. All right, so we are in chapter 2, verse 18. But really quick, some background. We're looking at this city of Thyatira. And what do we know about Thyatira? Well, the first thing we know is that it it was the center of Apollo worship in the ancient world. Not Apollo Creed from Rocky, this is a different Apollo, who was the god of sunlight, and as one scholar puts it, the patron saint of the Bronze Guild. Apollo was also talked about as the son of Zeus, and it was understood that the emperor was the incarnation of Apollo, making him also the son of Zeus. 
Additionally, in Thyatira, this city was known for its trade guilds. And if you did not belong to a trade guild, then you were basically committing financial suicide. You needed to be a part of one of these guilds if you were going to be able to function in the marketplace in Thyatira. But being a member of a trade guild required idol worship. And it exposed you to behavior that was beyond appropriate for those claiming God as Father and Jesus as Lord. So what's the point? Thyatira was a city saturated with idol worship, and that idol worship went hand in hand with financial security, which meant that those who wanted to follow Jesus were in a little bit of a pickle. Imagine not being able to provide for your family because you would be putting yourself at risk of worshiping idols, of practicing pagan religions. Imagine the struggle this would have been for the people living in that city at the time. So let's jump into the text and let's see what he says. Verse 18, the Son of God. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, the words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. What I've been loving about these letters is that each letter gives us an opportunity to talk a little bit about Christology, which is the study of Christ, the study of Jesus, the second person of the Trinity. And what does it say right off the bat? It says, the words of whom? The Son of God. The Son of God. The Nicene Creed, it says this, I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth and of all things visible and invisible. And then it says this, and in the Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, true God from true God, begotten not made, being of one substance with the Father by whom all things were made. So the idea of begotten means that Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, was not a created being, but he was begotten in the sense that, and and C.S. Lewis puts it like this in Mere Christianity. He says, when you beget, you beget something of the same kind as yourself. A man begets human babies, a beaver begets little beavers, and a bird begets eggs, which turn into little birds. But when you make something, you make something of a different kind from yourself. A bird makes a house, makes a nest, and a beaver builds a dam, and a man might build a home. Those are different from who they are. But Jesus is of the same substance as God. Jesus is of the same substance of God. So when we refer to Jesus as being the Son of God, it's just a fancy way of saying Jesus is God. Jesus is God. And this was a debate that was going on in the early church. And and this phrase, I'm going to give you a little preview of what we're going to be doing during Advent because we're going to be talking about the incarnation throughout our season of Advent. And there was this phrase that they used, homoousion, which is a Greek word that means of the same substance or of the same essence. So a little bit of systematic theology for you theology nerds, and the rest of you now can start listening again. So what's the point? In this passage, Jesus identifies himself as the Son of God, which means that he is of the same essence as the Father. In other words, Jesus is God. 
Now, I know you probably know this because you're here on a Sunday morning, but it's something that we can never get tired of talking about, that Jesus is God, because we need to pass this information on to the next generation. We can't just assume that everyone is going to know that Jesus is God, especially in a post-Christian world in which we're living. We need to wrap our minds around these truths. We need to wrestle with these truths. We need to rediscover these truths so we can pass them along to the next generation. And the truth that we have to wrestle with is that Jesus is God. In fact, there was never a time when the second person of the Trinity did not exist. And throughout his existence, which is eternal, he has always been equal with the Father. He's always been equal with the Father. And while the rest of this passage might feel disconnected from this truth, what we need to wrestle with as sons and daughters of God, adopted into the family of God, is whether or not our lives reflect our Father and our older brother Jesus, or if we are still operating as sons and daughters of Adam. Remember, the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. And may that be true for us as followers of Jesus. May it be true that the apple doesn't fall far from the tree and we reflect the wonder and majesty of our God who is in heaven. May that be the case for Redeemer Fellowship. And that's my prayer. That's my prayer is that we would be a people who show the world what? What God is like. We show the world what God is like. So it says, and to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, the words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. So in identifying Jesus as the Son of God, the text is doing a couple of things. The first thing, he's undermining Apollo and emperor worship. Because maybe they're Zeus's offspring, but Jesus is the son of the most high, Yahweh himself. And so just in that statement, what a contextual work of literary art. He is undermining what is happening in that city by referring to himself as the son of God. And that's incredible. But he's also doing something else. He's setting up this letter to be about sonship. In other words, this text is about what it means to be a child of God. And we're going to get there. We're going to get there. As we unpack this text, we're going to see how this theme starts to emerge from the text, that this is really a text about adoption and about sonship and what it means to have God as our father. He says a couple of other things. He says that he has eyes like flames of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. So he identifies himself as the one who has eyes like a flame of fire, meaning that his sight is penetrating. It cuts through the darkness. We're dealing with omniscience here, the all-knowing nature of God. And Jesus, remember, the Son is identifying himself as the all-knowing God, which is who? God, Yahweh himself. Jesus is God. We need to wrap our minds around that. And also, he identifies himself as one with feet like burnished bronze, which seems to be an echo of Daniel 10, but we're not going to get into that right now because that's a whole ball of wax that we don't have time for. But the text goes on. I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. 
But I have this against you that you tolerate that woman Jezebel. So first, verse 19, if you want to look at your Bibles, right? It says that this church is commended for their works, their love, their faith, their service, their patient endurance. This seems like a pretty healthy church, right? It seems like stuff is getting done in this church. Who knows, right? They're probably feeding the poor. Maybe they're filling Operation Christmas Child boxes. They probably have a goal of 200 while we're sitting here with 115. They're crushing it in this church. They're caring for one another. They're loving one another. They're probably loving non-Christians as well. This church appears healthy, but, but, but you tolerate, I have this against you, that you tolerate That woman, Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants. Teaching and seducing my people, Jesus is saying. To practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. They tolerate this woman. In other words, this seemingly healthy church is allowing the corruption of the nations to enter into their midst. This seemingly healthy church is allowing the corruption of the nations to enter into their midst. Where do I get nations from? Well, jump with me to 1 Kings chapter, uh, where am I? Chapter 16, excuse me. Chapter 16, I want to read you something because this is the backdrop of our text. Verses 29 and following in 1 Kings chapter 16. It says this, In the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah, Ahab, the son of Omri, began to reign over Israel. And Ahab, the son of Omri, reigned over Israel in Samaria 22 years. And Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord, more, more than all who were before him. What a, what a description, right? If I said to you, Dr. Joe, you've done more evil than anyone who has ever come before you. That's, that's a rough, you know, epitaph to have, right? Did I say that word right or if I'm even using it right? And as it had been a light thing for him to walk, as if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the sin of Nebat, he took for his wife, who? Jezebel the daughter of Ethbal, king of the Sidonians, and went and served Baal and worshipped him. He erected an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he built in Samaria. He's building homes for gods. He's building homes for gods, it says. And Ahab made an Asherah. Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. He did more to provoke the Lord to anger than all the kings who were before him. This is not a good guy. And where was he getting his information from? From this woman Jezebel, whom he married. He allowed the gods of the nations to enter into their midst. He allowed the gods of the nations to enter into their midst. That's the backdrop of our text this morning. That's the backdrop of our text this morning. So as we look at our text, the question we need to wrestle with, who is Jezebel? Who is this woman? Well, one, she's a false prophet. Two, she is deceiving God's people into thinking that they can serve both God and the local gods of their city. As if God would share his glory with anyone or anything. And also... While it's probable that there was a woman who was a false teacher seducing God's people and luring them away from God, I don't think it's necessary that her name is Jezebel, but rather 
the text picks up this name to draw our attention to that first Kings passage. That's how the Bible works. These, these authors are brilliant storytellers. He's putting this information in there to click something in our brain so we go back and we look at this text. And so we're looking at 1 Kings chapter 16, and what do we see? We see that Ahab was already doing evil in the sight of the Lord, but then he marries this foreign woman, Jezebel, and the results are Baal worship. And finally, Elijah does deal with the prophet, and he deals with all, and Ahab, uh, I lost my spot, Elijah eventually deals with this. But the point is, is that this woman, Jezebel, was bringing false teaching into the church, and he was luring people, she was luring people away from the true God and pouring in all this false gods into their midst. And that's what was happening in the church in Thyatira. That's what was going on. So what's the point? See, Jesus doesn't share his glory with anyone. And while he might be patient his patience will run out. I think it's actually really incredible. What does it say here? It says, I gave her time, in verse 21, if you look at your Bibles, I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Jesus gives her time to repent. This is the grace of our God. Those of us who are struggling in sin, those of us who are wrestling with this idea of worshiping one God and God alone, he gives us time the patience of our Lord, the forbearance of our Lord as the book of Romans articulates. He has patience with us and praise God he has patience with us because we need that. We need his grace. We need him to walk alongside us. We need him to nudge us when we're veering off the path, right? Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, right? We sing those songs. We need the grace of God. We need the patience of God. And even Jezebel, this woman who was bringing foreign worship into the house of God, even she is given the patience of God. Why? Because God loves the nations. God loves the nations. He wants to gather them in that they all might know God. But this woman refused to repent. And this is where we need to start wrestling. This is where we need to start hearing these words, right? There's an election next week. I'm not sure if you've heard there's a lot going on in our country right now. What I love about our church is that we do have people on either side of the aisle. What we have to wrap our minds around as we enter into this election season, as we are in the midst of this election season, I've said this before, that regardless of what happens on Tuesday, which we probably won't know until Christmas or maybe even a year from now, who knows. But whatever happens, one thing that we can rest assured on is that Jesus is seated on the throne. But that's, we can't just say amen. I love hearing amen. But we need to actually recognize that. We need to recognize and, and rest in that truth. And I think that's a key word. We need to rest in that truth because I think anxiety levels are high right now because all of us are sitting here wondering if so-and-so gets into office, America's going to be doomed or if so-and-so gets into office, America is going to be doomed. But it doesn't matter if America is doomed. Now, I'm not saying I want to live in, in a country that's just, um, I don't want to, right? No one wants this sort of thing. Like we were praying for the persecuted church this morning. We don't want to be persecuted, but are we prepared to be persecuted? Are we prepared for that? 
Because we've had it easy for a long time. A really long time. Probably too long. For those of us who want to follow Jesus and follow him well. We don't follow Jesus well when things are going well. It seems that the church grows during times of persecution. And what we need to wrestle with as we look at these texts, as we look at the entire scripture, are we ready for that sort of thing? And will we rejoice in the midst of it as as we see articulated throughout the New Testament? The apostles counted a joy for suffering for the name, right? They counted a joy. Are we prepared? Are we prepared? Do we know what is actually out there? As we live here in the United States, we have so much freedom. And you go just across the pond and wherever you might go, the freedoms, it's not the same. And there is actual persecution taking place in the world. Are we ready for that as followers of Jesus? And, and, a, and, a, even, and a harder question to answer, are we willing to lay aside our political affiliations for the sake of the gospel? Because that's what matters most, that Jesus is king and that we proclaim him as Lord and that others know. And, and the thing is that we cannot be known by whatever political affiliation that we hold, whether it's right or left. We need to be known by the love we have for one another and the love we have for our king. That's what we need to be known by because what we see happening is that the church is getting, getting shaken up by the gods of this world. By the gods of this world. Whenever we jump into the, the world of politics and we allow it to consume us, those are the gods of this world. Do we need to be aware of what's going on politically? Of course we do. We need to be responsible citizens. We have to resist the temptation to be obsessed with whatever tribe we belong to. Because that is not what it means to be a follower of Jesus. To be a follower of Jesus means that we're distinct from that. Yes, you can vote. Yes, you can have opinions. Of course, we are supposed to. We're supposed to even debate these things in a healthy way and not on Facebook or Twitter. But we need to point one another to Jesus first. Sadly, when I was, when I was younger, I'm going to tell this story. This is completely off script. When I was younger, I had, a, I had an ex-girlfriend. Um, obviously, she's an ex-girlfriend. Um, and, and I remember... Her, her parents weren't Christians. Her dad wasn't a Christian. And I, and I heard that he was a Republican. And in my head, I thought, oh, wow, that's so great. He's pretty close to becoming a Christian. This is what I thought. This is what I thought. Now, this is not a slam on Republicanism or Democrats. That's not the point. The point is, is that one doesn't necessarily have something to do with the other. And so we have to wrestle with that. We have to resist that temptation to allow the gods of this world, to infiltrate the people of God. We have to wrestle with that because that is what is going on in this text. And yes, we might not worship little statues, but we worship other gods. For sure we do. For sure we do. I would commend to you Tim Keller's book on um, on counterfeit gods, it's called. And, And he unpacks the whole idea of idol worship as it looks like in our present culture. And it's, it's a really great read because it, it starts to show us that, oh, that, that's an idol. Oh, that's an idol. That's a foreign God. That's a foreign God. And God does not share his glory with anyone. He doesn't share his glory with anyone. So let's continue moving on through the text. 
He says this, he says, behold, I will throw her into a sickbed, verse 22, and those who commit adultery with her, I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works. And I will strike her children dead and all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart and I will give to each of you according to your works. See, there's judgment for those who turn aside from the one true God and run after false gods. There's judgment. Now, I'm not saying this is salvation by works, right? Because we can, we can get nervous sometimes when we see that there are certain deeds that are required of the follower of Jesus. That like, it's like, oh, no, no, we're not saved by works. We're saved by grace alone through faith alone. Like, of course, I'm not saying no, but the scriptures talk about this idea that when we do perform good works, we are justifying our justification. We're proving our justification to be true. Faithfulness reveals who we truly are. Good works reveal who we truly are. When we love God and love neighbor, we reveal who we truly are, who our father is, who our older brother is. Remember, this is a text about sonship, and you're going to see that in just a minute. We are the children of God, and if the apple starts rolling too far away from the tree, then maybe Maybe we were not from that tree to begin with. That's the point. We need to be a people marked by holiness. We need to be a people marked by love. We need to be a people marked by our commitment to Jesus Christ alone. Alone. Because he is king. He is king. And as king, he has the authority to judge. And Pete and I were talking about this a little bit earlier before the service starts. And that not only does he have the right to judge, but he has the right to condemn those who are outside of his kingdom. So we are either, we are either saved through the judgment of God, we're either forgiven because we're in Christ, or the judgment of God falls upon us and we experience his wrath. So judgment is like a two-sided coin where it's either grace or wrath. And in removing sin from this world, what happens? Nothing other but, but flourishing. Right When sin does not abound, people can flourish. We don't flourish when we're in the midst of sin. And we know that even personally, experientially. That when we sin, when we struggle with the sin, it holds us back. We can't experience full fellowship with God and full fellowship with, another, with one another because something's blocking that. And we've experienced that as followers of Jesus. I heard one person say once that the most miserable person in the world is the Christian who is sinning. Because one, they're experiencing the conviction of that sin. And they know that they're far from God. I mean, how many of you, when you've, when you've sinned and you know you've sinned, you just, you, you didn't want to, maybe you didn't want to pray for like a day or two or three or even a week. Because you're like, I can't go to God. I can't pray which is false, by the way. That's not how it works. Please run to Jesus and ask for his forgiveness and jump back into fellowship with him. But what does it do to us emotionally? It separates us from God. We feel that separation. And God is saying, no, repent of those things. Come. He gives us time. He gave Jezebel time. Lord knows he's giving you time. So run back into the arms of Jesus. Don't let sin separate you from God. He will forgive you of those sins. I'm going off on a tangent right now, but, but the point is, is that we, as sons and daughters of God, must reflect our Father, and we must show people Christ. That's what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And so the text goes on, but to the rest of you. So there's two groups of people in Thyatira. There's two groups of people. To the rest of you. 
to the rest of you in Thyatira who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast what you have until I come. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my father. And I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the spirit says to the churches. And so according to this text, there were some in the church who were not seduced by Jezebel. See, there's always a remnant. There's always a remnant. And the remnant is called to hold fast what you have until I come. In other words, remain faithful. I know it's hard. I know you can't even make ends meet because you can't join those trade guilds. I get it. I know what you're going through, but do not be seduced by the gods of this world, by the nations. Remember, we are to be in this world, but we are not of this world. And this is where it gets really interesting. And this is where I had Deanna up last night where I was just talking to her and she's just looking at me. She's like, all right, you got to bring that down a little bit because I'm not sure what you're talking about. But, but the point is, is that this is where the text starts to pop. Remember I said that this passage was about sonship or what it means to be a child of God. And the text does something incredible. Verses 26 through 27, I want to read it again. It says this, the one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give what? Authority over the nations. And he will rule them with what? A rod of iron. And when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father, I want to read something to you. Psalm 2 says this. I'm just going to read the whole psalm. Why do the nations rage? I mean, I figure if Pete's reading the entire Bible, i got to jump on as well. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me. Here it is. Pay attention. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with what? A rod of iron. And dash them in pieces like what? A potter's vessel. Who do we think that's about? That's about Jesus, right? 100% that's about Jesus. I'm not going to tell you that Psalm 2 is not about Jesus. It is about Jesus. But look what Jesus does. Look what Jesus does in verse 26 and 27. He says, and he, nope, he didn't say it there. Verse 26, the one who conquers. Who are the one who conquers? Who, who are the conquering ones? It's us. People of God are the conquering ones. Now, make no mistake about it. When we conquer, we conquer in Christ. 
right? So we don't conquer of our own accord. We conquer in Christ. So what does he do? To the one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give him authority over the nations and what he will rule them with a rod of iron as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my father. Psalm 2 is a messianic psalm that points forward to the work of Jesus. Jesus then takes these words and he applies them to the church. In other words, those of us who are in Christ, not only are we identified as sons and daughters of God, but we are given the authority of Christ. Do you see what's happening here? Do you see this little twist that Jesus is doing in the text here? The point of this letter To compromise and commit adultery with the gods of this world is to place ourselves not only under the judgment of God, but under the feet of the church, whereby we will be dashed to pieces like a potter's vessel. While faithfulness will lead us to the very place we were always intended to go, the place where we will rule and reign with Christ, the very thing Adam was commanded to do and Israel was commanded to do, but what Christ actually did. This is what it means when the scriptures talk about us being seated in the heavenly places with Christ. It means that we are co-heirs with him. Royal priests ruling and reigning with Christ over all of creation for the rest of eternity. Do we understand what's happening here? Jesus is saying, you are either with the gods of this world or you are with me. If you are with me, you have all authority in heaven and on earth. You have all authority under me. Not me, but Jesus. Under Christ, we have all authority. But what does it mean to have authority in the here and now? What does it mean to rule and reign as Jesus did when he was on this earth? I'm sure some of you can guess where I'm going because it doesn't mean that we crush people. It doesn't mean that we're seated and glorified. What it does mean is that we wrap ourselves in the cross of Jesus Christ. It means that we wrap ourselves in the suffering of those around us in our midst and those on the outside. It means that we are formed by the cross, not only forgiven by the cross. We share together in the life of Christ by loving God and loving our neighbors. And how did Jesus love the world? By dying for them. And so we too are called to enter into the suffering of those around us and to enter into that suffering proclaiming the risen King Jesus, proclaiming the good news that though you might be far from God, he is a patient God and he will forgive you of your sins if you bend your knee to him and ask him for forgiveness. This is what it means to be a follower of Jesus in the here and now. Yes, we rule and reign with Christ, but that has not yet been fully realized. We are not yet physically in the new heavens and the new earth yet. So no, we don't have those glorified bodies. No, we have not yet been raised up on the last day. We are still in this sinful place that one day will be restored, but as of right now, it's broken. And he sends us out to bring hope to bring peace. That's what it means to rule and reign. That's what it means to have dominion in this world. 
that we proclaim Christ, that we share one another's burdens, that we enter into the suffering of others. And it's only then that we will experience the blessing of the kingdom of God. Remember in the Sermon on the Mount, those Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor. Blessed are the weak. Blessed are all the people that don't seem so blessed right now. Oh, but that's where blessing is found. Because that's when we're putting on Christ. That's when we're putting on Christ. See, often we want to skip the suffering part and get right to the resurrection, but that is not our path. I, I hate to break the news. That is not our path. And so, so, so my job, I, I read an interesting article this past week, and it talked about the job of the pastor is to prepare the people for suffering. It's to prepare the people for brokenness. And so, so that's, that's my role is to, is to prepare us, because I'm included in that as I wrestle with these things throughout the week, is to prepare us to experience, it, to experience the suffering that is inevitable in this life, especially if we claim Christ as Lord. It's inevitable. And so we're going to talk about suffering a lot at Redeemer Fellowship because it is what the world is. Oh, but there's something beautiful that happens. There's something beautiful. Read with me. Verse 27, he says this. Verse 28, and I will give him the morning star. And he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Jesus says in verse 28 that those who conquer will receive the morning star. Jesus is the bright morning star from Revelation chapter 21 or 20, I believe. So the prize at the end of the race, at the end of this suffering, at the end of this, this trial that we call life, as we enter into suffering, as we enter into persecution, as we enter into whatever it is that we might experience because of our faithfulness, whatever the case may be, at the end of the race, what do we get? We get Jesus that's a really big deal. We have the fellowship of Almighty God. That's what it means to be sons and daughters of God. We get God. We get God. And so as we look at the beginning of this text, because this text is framed by sonship, right? He says, I am the son of God. And then he quotes Psalm 2, recognizing us as the children of God. And what do we get as children of God? We get God. And who is the son of God? Jesus. He is God Almighty himself. And we get him. We get fellowship with him. We get a relationship with him. We get to look at him face to face for all eternity. Oh, how sweet it is to trust in Jesus. Do we understand that, church? We get God. Bible commentator and scholar Daryl Johnson, he says it like this. The morning star usually appears at the darkest time of the night. It usually emerges at that point when the night is as dark as it's going to get. When it appears, there's no sign of the dawn, but when it appears, very faint and small at first, you know that the night cannot withstand the dawn. 
It is just a matter of time until the dawn wipes the night away. The morning star pulls the morning in behind it just as certainly as Jesus pulls the kingdom behind him. The morning star pulls the morning in behind it just as certainly as Jesus Christ pulls the kingdom of God in behind him. He's coming back. It's inevitable. And while it might feel dark, while it might feel broken, while anxiety levels might be rising, the truth of the matter is Jesus is coming back. The hope of the resurrection means he's coming back again to establish the new heavens and the new earth, and we will reign with him for all eternity. That's the beauty of the gospel. That's the beauty of this thing that we call Christianity. It's not just something we do on Sundays. It's something that wraps itself around our entire lives, and it takes us through eternity. Eternity. I wish I can explain what eternity means. I wish I can wrap my mind around what eternity means, but I think that's the point. We're not supposed to get forever. It's supposed to mess with our brain. Even my son will talk about how, like, wait, God's eternal? God doesn't have a beginning? Like, that doesn't make any sense. And he's right. It doesn't make any sense. But man, eternity with Jesus, with one another, worshiping together. It's something that we were longing to do during the pandemic, and we're still in a pandemic. I know. It's all over Facebook and Twitter. We're still in it. But we were longing to be together. We were longing to have our voices rise up together in worship to God. And we're here now. We're doing it. We're doing it. And we need to be encouraged by that. Because what this is, is a foretaste of what eternity will be. And this is where I want to end this morning. Because I've said it before. The book of Revelation is a book of hope and encouragement. And most people don't get that for some reason. Because what most people want to do is they want to, take, they want to pull out all their charts and they want to point to all the moments that this is this and this is this and this is this. And, and to be perfectly honest, we don't really know that this is this and this is this. And while those charts are, are lovely and very well organized, that's not the point of the book. The point of the book is to show us Jesus, to give us hope, and to give us a heavenly picture of this world. That's the point. Now, we can, we can wrestle with these other things and we can have friendly conversations. But if we ever miss the point, then we might as well not even bother reading the book. And I don't care how many charts you have, it doesn't matter. If you miss Jesus, you miss it all. You miss it all. And it's him that we get at the end of this race. We have him now with veiled faces, but one day we will gaze upon him with un veiled faces. Can you imagine that? I want you to take a second and just think about what it's going to be like to be in the presence of Jesus. So as we go to the table this morning, I want us to go in anticipation 
that one day we will feast together in the house of Zion. But let us also come to the table reflecting and confessing to God where we might be flirting with Jezebel, whether that's in our personal holiness or whether it is where we put our hope. That's the big question. Who do you trust? Who do you trust? Who do you trust? Do you trust Joe Biden? Do you trust Donald Trump? Because I don't trust them. You know who I do trust? I trust Jesus. And while we have to be engaged, our eyes must be fixed on Christ. Fixed on Christ. Those who have ears to hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And so, as I call the ushers forward to start passing out communion, I think what Jesus is kind of screaming at us right now. If you call me brother, if you call me Lord, then you must live like me. You must live like me. And to live like him is to wrap ourselves in the brokenness of this world, proclaiming the good news of Jesus so that others might catch a glimpse of what God is like and turn their hearts to God in repentance and become followers with us, that they too might be adopted into this motley crew that we call the family of God. This is our mission. This is what it means. I want to challenge us. Open your homes, socially distance, and be safe. Of course, I'm not telling you all to go get COVID, but open your homes to your neighbors. Tell them about Christ. Serve them. Where are the needs in your own community? Right now, the elders are wrestling with where are the needs in Tom's River? How can we be a church that is effectively on mission? But in the interim, while we're figuring out this transition at Redeemer Fellowship, because we all know we're in a transition. I'm I'm assuming we're aware of that. While we're wrestling with this and working through that, continue to to look at the world around you, your world, your neighbors, your family, your friends. What are the needs in their lives? How can you meet those tangible needs? And how can you show them Christ? How can you tell them their need of a savior as you meet physical needs, as you open up your homes, as as you wrestle with these things? We have to. We have to. Because if not, what are we doing? What are we doing? The gospel calls us to move outward with the good news of Jesus. And we run out and we tell them, hey guys, Jesus is king. Come, let me show you what that means. This is what we're being called to. Don't be fooled by Jezebel. Don't be fooled by the gods of this world. Don't be fooled by political pundits and and, and platforms. Don't be fooled. We have one king and his name is Jesus. And it's him that we bend our knee to. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I thank you for your word. I thank you for your grace. And I thank you for the good news of the gospel, Lord. And I pray, Lord, that these words would penetrate our hearts, that they penetrate my heart, Father. Lord, at wrestling with this all week, I just there was so much conviction that I was just struggling with throughout the week. Father, we need to be a people who reflect the goodness and glory of your great name, Father. I beg that of you. Help us, Lord. Help us to walk in faithfulness. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.